The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. We have four weeks for Advent, and and each year when we tackle our Advent series, the goal is to again remember and see the reality that God himself came to earth and to understand why he did that. Um, When we were younger, you probably understood that if you were naughty, the likelihood of you getting good gifts was just diminished tremendously. And, and if you were nice, then there'd be a promise of, of some reward. And, and I think even if you didn't know Santa Claus or, or think he was real, um, that, that was kind of like this thing held out in front of you, like be good, because then good things will happen to you, right? You be bad, and then, then you get coals in your stocking. The crazy story of Christmas, what we're calling the scandalous songs of Christmas. The scandal of Christmas is this, that we were not good, but that God gave us his best. We were not good, and God gave us his best. Scandalous is defined this way, containing material damaging to reputations. Containing material damaging to reputations. And when we read the stories surrounding four songs that all have to do with the Christmas story, we see that each one of each one of these stories has tremendously damaging information that for us would totally disqualify us from God ever wanting to come down and rescue us, go on a rescue mission to save us. But the scandal of all is met by God's incredible promise that he himself would come, and we're going to discover that. The first week, we're going to be looking all the way back to the beginning uh, when Adam and Eve disobey God and then God sings a song of judgment over them, which we'll see today. Um, next week, we're going to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth and how you have an old, older couple who are, um, they are righteous, it says, but they're disbelieving of God when he promises that he's going to give them a son. And, and so the scandal of both them having a son, this miraculous son in their old age, and then them both kind of doubting that God will do what he says. The third is Mary's song. Mary was a virgin, so there's some obvious scandal there in the story. And then the fourth song is that that the angels sing to a couple shepherds out in a field. And, and the scandal behind that one is this, that I want you to imagine these angels who have the coolest news of all time. And they have likely been practicing for a few thousand years, right? This song that they're going to break forth and sing, and they know it's like night of. Stage rehearsals are out of the way. And they're like, okay, who are we singing to? And God says, uh, well, there's a, a couple of tone-deaf shepherds in a field I thought that would be a good warm-up. You know, like they, they start singing the, the greatest song of all time, like probably 50,000-part harmony. Right? They're, just, they're going for it, 
And it's to this, this group of lonely outsiders in a field. And so this scandal that those are the people that God would prioritize and come to. Um, so uh, the story of Christmas. This is, over the whole Advent series, this is the theme I want you to get. That Christmas is, Christmas is the consequence of sin and the great glory of God. Christmas is the consequence of sin and the great glory of God. What do I mean by that? That, that Christmas wouldn't have happened unless there was sin. But in that, God is redeeming a people to see him and enjoy him. Consequences happen because there's a problem. And I want to share a story with you that I've heard often at different conferences I've gone to for social work. Um, they tell this story of a, an individual who is out fly fishing in a river, um, out looking for trout. All of a sudden, they see someone struggling, drowning, coming down the river, and this fly fisherman charitably dives in, saves the person. You know, everything's well, goes back to fly fishing. All of a sudden, they see another person coming down the river, struggling for life, drown, you know, and so they dive in again. After this happens, over and over again, the fly fisherman thinks, well, I don't want to spend my whole time just rescuing people, so I'm going to actually go and see why they're falling in the river. Does that make sense? So rather than just dealing with the, the consequences over and over again, I'm going to go see what causes that problem. And so what we're going to do today is that. Ultimately, go back and see what the, the initial problem is. Go upstream. This is the, the upstream example that, um, that you hear with social work. We're going to go upstream and see what has caused this problem then that we see uh, fixed by the birth of Jesus at Christmas. So we find this in, uh, in Genesis 3.1. Um, what we have given context is that God has created the world and everything in it, and he's created with incredible intention and design. Um, you see in the story of creation that he's, he's made man and woman and made them so they understand their need for one another. He's created this world for them to take care of, and they live in unbroken relationship with him. And for a lot of you, that is like yada, yada, yada. Right, like bend their like we know that. The challenging is like there's no problem at that point, right? At, at that point, they they walked with God. They didn't they didn't need this rescue mission of Jesus. And so, what happened then that we would need God to invade Earth in the person of Jesus? And what happens is Genesis three. And so, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read us through this and explain it as we go. Um, starting actually. <clears throat> Right before, and we don't have a slide for this, but right before Genesis 3, you have Genesis 2.25, which says that Adam and Eve were, this is kind of scandalous, naked and not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. What does that mean? Well, shame is this. Shame is feeling wrong. Like legitimate shame is this, feeling wrong because something is wrong. So having no shame means there, there's no feeling of wrong or, or no truth of wrongdoing. And so there's no need 
to be aware or acknowledge or feel that wrong, right? And so, so there was nothing wrong, no need for them to, like, oftentimes when we feel shame and we feel like guilt and, like, all eyes are on us and we don't want them to be on us, right? There was no need for that, which is incredible. There is, and I want you to capture that, nothing felt wrong because nothing was wrong. Nothing felt wrong because nothing was wrong. So what happens in Genesis 3.1 is this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman replies, We may eat from the fruit from any tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So if you're following along in your notes, this is the, the first, um, what we call the one little question. A question that seems very innocent, but the, the question is this, did God really? Like, did God really say this? And it's kind of a, it's a little question because what Eve could have responded is simply, yeah, God said that, right? Like God said, I trust it, let's do this. The thing is that the question the serpent is asking um, isn't just a question for information, but it's a question that calls into question the word of God and the character of God. And that's where it goes wrong. See, this isn't the first question ever asked. Adam and Eve had who knows how long they've already been living in relationship with God here, but even if it was like a couple of weeks, they would have already unloaded on God thousands of questions. Because questions are good. It was probably like, should I jump off this cliff? Like, will that be okay? And I was like, no, cliffs aren't to jump off of. Like, whatever they had to interact with, I think even questions relating to one another and questions relating to God. So, so as they work through it, it, it could have been like, you know, they were busy cooking their, their vegetable stew because they weren't eating animals yet. And, and so they were busy cooking their vegetable stew. And, uh, you know, Adam burned the stew. And, and Eve's like, God, so what do I do about this? Adam burned the stew. And God's like, it's okay, it's good. You know, like as they walked through life, it wasn't that, that there was nothing, that they weren't omniscient. They didn't have all-knowing, right? And so they didn't necessarily know every right thing to do in relationship to each other and God, but they could immediately go to God and ask those questions, which is beautiful, right? And so, what the serpent does here is he asks a question, though, that questions the word of God and therefore the character of God. So, for example, if someone says to you, "Um, hey, I know you said this, but I don't believe you what likely you're going to say is not, oh, that's fine. But you're going to feel a little insulted, right? Because you're going to be like, they don't trust me. They don't trust my word, and therefore they do not trust my character. And so the serpent calls into question the character of God. And Eve, instead of just responding what, what God had said and trusting that, what she says is this, right? God said you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. So God had said this, but a different variation of this, which did not include not touching the tree. Which again seems minor, but I, I want you to think of it in this way. Have any of you guys seen the marshmallow test? Yeah, 
The marshmallow test is awesome. So um, I encourage you to YouTube marshmallow test. And what you're going to find is this experiment where they put a child in a room with the marshmallow and they explain to that child, I'm going to leave for five minutes and you can either eat this marshmallow or when I come back, you will have two marshmallows. I'll give you another marshmallow. And so, so some of the kids, like one of the kids, when they hear, she hears she can eat it, she just eats it. She doesn't even wait. And, and other kids, they wait till the, the person who's, who's conducting the test leaves and then, and then starts this incredible like angst. You have children that literally they like shove it away and they're like And then you have kids that like after 30 seconds they literally take it, they lick it and they put it back and other kids are like <laughs> And it's it's so enjoyable to watch because there's this amazing conflict that's going on inside of them and and I think we get that here where God didn't say they couldn't touch it, but they have obviously added a rule. And so it's possible that Adam and Eve walking by and Eve would be like, <laughs> and, and then Adam's like, no, we just have a rule. We just don't touch it. We're going to make another rule. Like uh, what God said we're going to add to. No, they didn't need to add to it. They just needed to, to obey it and, and trust his command. So, so what can seem like such a, a little thing then becomes major. And there's a lot of incredible studies on this, like like studies on if you have a do a little white lie, how how much it increased the likelihood of doing a bigger lie. If you wear like you know, like non designer sunglasses, but they say they're designer, how much more likely you are to steal. It's crazy. Um not judging any one of you if you don't wear designer sunglasses. Um so so the way the serpent responds is this is that instead of, he moves it up from just a little lie to then this, this sorry, a little question to then a big lie where he directly um, conflicts with what God is saying. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The big lie he's telling is this, that, that God is not good. God is not good. And, and what I mean by this is that what he's challenging is that, that God will give his best, not just that God will give his best, but what is best for Adam and Eve. And he calls that into question. And the Bible, throughout the story of Scripture, responds to this in two ways. And one of those ways is this. If God doesn't give you his best, or God doesn't give you what you think is his best, is he not worth worshiping? Which is a kind of an interesting question. And Paul responds to it in this way. He says, can a, a, a clay pot say to its creator, why did you make me like this? So Paul's response to this question is like, even if God does something that we don't think is best, does that mean we, Paul just says, we still worship him because he's God. The amazing thing, though, in Romans 8 is that we're, we're shown by Paul again. So what he just said was in Romans 9. Then what he says in Romans 8 is this. If God 
gave us his very own son, how will he not also give us all things? So what Paul's saying is he did give us his best. So how do we respond to that? Well, the way Eve responds to it is in this, that she takes the words of the serpent and trusts them. And she finds what she already knows, which is that the fruit is good. It says it was good for food. Which God, It says that everything God made is good. It says it was pleasing to the eye, which it probably was. It was beautiful. And then the very last part is this. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. And it also would give them that. It would give them knowledge that they didn't have available to them otherwise. The question is, though, is that a knowledge that they should have? And so these things that God had already told them, like everything I made is good, but don't do that. And there's so many things in our lives that we see that we see and we're like, man, that's lovely. And we're instructed not to do that. And yet, instead of trusting God, they trusted their own insight. And because of that, they ate. And the amazing thing that happens is this. So she gives it to her husband, he eats also, then the eyes of both of them are open and they realize they were naked. What happens is they feel shame. And so the, the first time something is wrong and they feel that wrong and they don't know what to do it. And what happened is that instead of looking at God and reflecting God, being in a relationship with God, they looked at themselves and saw themselves as sufficient. Right? And so they take, took the fruit and they ate it. But then when they looked at themselves and saw that they weren't sufficient, all, that they, could, all they could do is be ashamed of that, right? No longer were they in this context where they could receive from God and live in a relationship with God, but everything had to come from them now. They didn't rely on God for that anymore. It all had to come from within them, and they had to look at themselves and go, we weren't made for that, but they didn't, they didn't comprehend that. And then that was the death of being alone without God. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made a covering for themselves. And this is profound. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And this is a profound thought. I want you just to to wrap your mind around this, that the desire of Adam and Eve was that they would never see God again. That is profound. If Adam and Eve got their way, they would have lived the rest of their days without seeing God. Their children, their children wouldn't see God. And no one would ever have to interact with God again because they were afraid of him and they hid from him. So even when God came down, when God approaches and he, is, he walks in the cool of the day and makes himself available, they didn't want him. And that's, that's incredible to dwell upon that their desire was no longer for him, and from that point on, all interaction with God, from that point on, has been one that includes terror. So the next three stories we look at, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, when the angel comes to Zechariah, the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. When the angel comes to Mary, the first thing he says to Mary is, don't be afraid. When the angel comes to the shepherds, the first thing he says is, don't be afraid. Why? Because from this point on, we are afraid of God. 
You don't have to be afraid of a God of your own making, your own understanding, the God you make up when you look inward and just make a God that will appease you, right? Like, you don't have to be afraid of that God, but the God who was and is, Yahweh, that is a God who strikes fear in our hearts when he walks among us. We don't want him around. That's profound. But what God does is he is the pursuer. He is the chaser. And so God comes down And he asked three questions to them. And the first of those questions is this. Where are you? What does that mean? Where are you? Well, if you you think of the context, it's kind of funny because obviously Adam and Eve are probably like 10 feet away in the bushes. You know? So he, he knows they're around. He knows where they are. And so it doesn't just mean like location in the building. Like, where are you in the garden? Did I, you know? Literally, Adam cries out from these bushes that he is in, I heard you in the garden. And I was not, Adam does not have any idea how to interact with this fear in his heart and why when he sees God, he doesn't want him anymore. Isn't that amazing? And so God comes down and says, where are you? And, and at the, the root of that question, what God is really saying is, <laughs> is Adam. Adam, do you know the place you stand in relationship to me now? Like, where are you really at? Because obviously Adam, when he responds, uh, I heard you in the garden. Adam, Adam wasn't thinking um, like, like, well, now here I am, God. <laughs> So he heard God and he saw God as pursuer, but he knew that now when he stood in relationship with God, something had changed. Where are you? I think that question comes to us in the same way, where we like to think of ourselves as like ready for God and ready for his presence, but when God shows up, I don't know if you've done this in prayer and you're praying and, and you think you're saying, where are you, God? And then God says to you, where are you? And you're like, I have no clue. Like, I don't know how to describe where I'm at. The same place. The second question is this. Who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? And the question, who told you, is this. God is saying, I told you, but you obviously did not listen to me. So what other information, what other input, what other words are going on in your head that you're believing? As there's so much talk that happens and and so much input we get, and it could be from media, entertainment, from friends, from books, whatever it is, you are getting input. Who are you hearing from and where is that leading you? Because it was obvious where that information led them. It was obvious that it led them to destruction. So God says, can you identify those voices? Um, I went through a mental health training a couple years back, and it was about, uh, part of it was about schizophrenia and, and the, the voices people hear. And they did a simulation where you hear words getting spoken to you. And the voices were, nobody cares about you. That person hates you. They don't want you around. And they were all very, very, not just negative, but like 
but so destructive words. It, like schizophrenia isn't like, hey, you're having a great day. Be awesome. You're cool. Like that isn't what happens. It's, it's like this negative input. And so the question is, I'm not saying we're all schizophrenic. Uh, what I'm saying is sometimes we hear words that are such terrible misinformation. It's not, sometimes it's internal talk. Sometimes it literally is voices from those around us who are, are just tearing us down or, or distracting us from seeing and savoring the words of God. It speaks life over us. It speaks promises over us. And Adam doesn't know what to do with this. Who told you? And so he doesn't even talk about the serpent or anything. He just says, well, the woman you put here with me gave me some fruit and I ate it. So it's this classic, um, like, God, I called this. Like I told you, you put the woman here and things are going to go south. And so, so he totally like evades what God is saying. And in the same way, we do that. I think we know oftentimes where we get the information from. We just don't want to stop. Like oftentimes we, we know, like things that are, are slowly destructive and we like just kind of let them continue being in our lives and associating with them. Um, and so they didn't say anything about their deception, just distraction. The next thing God says is this, the question. He says, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? What have you done? And the last thing God is doing is he's welcoming them into what we're calling awareness. Like to actually acknowledge what has happened. So Adam and Eve, what they could have done immediately is saying, God, we heard from the serpent. We knew it was wrong. We did it anyway. Help. But they didn't want to face the awareness of their situation. And they didn't want to face the awareness of the lies they had believed. And so instead of being aware of that and living in confession of that, again, she just says, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate, and blamed somebody else for it. And so what God does is this. He sings a song of judgment over them. And, and before we get into the song of judgment, um, I want to... Um, address a, a question that we can have really easily, like, why didn't God just go, hey, we'll figure it out? Like, is because God, before this happened, had made a promise to them. And that promise was, you can eat anything in the garden, but if you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And God is true to his promises and fulfilled the promise that a death would happen. And so what the woman should have said when God asked, what have you done? The woman should have said, I killed us. That's what I did. And I don't know what to do now. <laughs> she knew, she, she was deceived by the serpent. She didn't need to be deceived. She knew the truth. She knew that the truth, the fruit would kill her. But they did it anyway. And so God, true to his promise, sings a song over them of judgment. And this is incredible. And I want you to see this as a song. And and I got asked after first, like, where did you hear about it being a song? Like, I didn't read a commentary that was like, this is the song of judgment. But it, literally, that's the way it's written. It's written as a song in here. Like, this, like the, the Psalms are written. We get God's song over them. The song of sorrow and judgment. And this is how it goes. 
So the Lord God said to the servant, because you've done this cursor to you above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And we're just going to, we're going to end it there. There is, uh, there's more. He speaks to the woman and then he speaks also to the man. And in these songs, there is incredible um, insight into our relationship with nature from this point on, our relationship with one another, men and women, and their, their relationship to each other, the struggles that we will face. That is in this. But what I want to focus on in this Song of Judgment is this verse in 3.15 where it said, and he, the offspring or seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent and you will strike his heel. This is from the early church considered the first proclamation of the gospel. And we can see this in a couple ways. We can see this because throughout the New Testament, there are references to this as the first proclamation of the gospel. We're even given a cool Latin word that is in your notes, and I put in your notes so you can impress your friends at the Christmas party. It is the Proto-Evangelion, which literally means the first gospel. This is the first gospel, the first declaration of what gospel means is good news. And so weaving in, woven in this song of judgment, God gives a promise that he himself will come and wage war on the serpent and that he will overcome and he will crush the head of the serpent. And that is Good news. And so what I want to share with you, among all the places this is referenced, I want to show you in Revelation 12, where you kind of see the culmination of this. In Revelation 12, which, right, if this is the problem upstream, Revelation is far downstream, right? And so Revelation 12, starting in verse 7, says this, The war broke out in heaven. Some crushing is going to happen, Okay. It says, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. Oh, we got it here. Thank you. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent, ding, 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 right? I'm not making this stuff up. (laughs) The prayer of Evangelion, the first proclamation of the gospel, we look back to that. Like, we trust that. The, The church has always seen that. That, that is literally before we even have the church and we just have Israel and the anticipation of Messiah starts when? When the problem happened and God made the promise and he was hurled down to earth. So Satan will lead the whole world astray and he was hurled down to earth and his angels with him and in a loud voice in heaven said, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. So what is Satan doing? He's accusing people. Those, lot, you know, those people, they believed me. Why would you want them? Right? They knew your words. They didn't obey your words. He's been hurled down. They triumphed over him. How? Not because they were nice. <laughs> no. They triumphed him by the blood of the Lamb. Right? By the seed of the woman, Jesus, who would crush the head of the serpent, the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows what that his time is short. And so the last point on your notes is this, that in the end, Christ wins. That the deceiver's time is short. And that his head will be crushed, and sin will be destroyed, and we will be ultimately, once and for all, restored. And so throughout the Bible, you get this big theme of problem and and promise. And the promise that God said, just like his words to Adam and Eve were true, his promise is true and can be trusted. The incredible thing is this. I think that Christmas isn't just about stars and Gifts and stuff. But I really want us to see Christmas is the consequence of sin. Christmas is the consequence of good things. It's the consequence of a promise. And yet it is the good thing. Because out of broken things, God is is building his promise and sending Jesus to restore ultimately what was broken. That is the first proclamation of the gospel. That God will come and he will save. And and I want you to see that in the context of if you've ever felt afraid of God and not knowing what to do with him, that's, man, that's where Adam and Eve were. We're a lot further downstream. So it's a lot more ingrained in us, okay? But God's promise is true and we can hold to that. And so what I want to leave you with is those three questions that God asked to Adam and Eve. And the first is this, where are you right now? Are you hiding? Is there something in you that you haven't wanted God to know? Or if God shows up, he can have everything else in your life, but that piece you don't want him to touch. Are you hiding in a certain way? The second thing is this, who told you? What information are you believing what information are you receiving? I mean, it could be right, friends that you just kind of let fill your mind with, um, with stuff that, that you even know leaves you in a bad place, but you still keep hearing it. Um, is it words that you just hear in your own head that are really destructive, and are those the words that you're believing? Or are you being informed by the truth of the promise? Because his promise is for you. And the last thing is this. And God says, what have you done? I want to ask you, what have you done? What have you done? And are you aware of your need for God? Are you willing to be honest about that? And, and this can go two ways. One, are you aware of what you've done? Is One, are you aware of what it means when you say, yes, God, I trust you? And are you aware that you're now a child of God? And, and like in Revelation 12, where they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimonies, that can be you. And you can overcome whatever's thrown your way. There can be victory, and you can share completely in the victory of Christ Jesus. That's good. Amen. Maybe when you're asked, what have you done? The thing that you're most aware of is something that brings you shame. 
and you're still super aware of that and you haven't come to confess that and you need to confess that so you can be restored and washed in the blood of the Lamb and share in the testimony of the saints. And if that's the case, I want to invite you to live in confession. And as you come into this incredible Christmas season, prepare your heart for the coming of Jesus because he is coming again. And we can be ready for him and we can celebrate that or we can hide. So let's celebrate him. Pray with me. God, thank you that you explain so much to us and and it's hard to kind of just sit here and receive it and go, man, like I can re- I can just receive these words. I don't even have to like work to create my own ideas of what's good or not. I I can read and see the God who created all things chases us down and loves us that he came in the world as Jesus and and though though his own did not accept him he overcame and loved just so tremendously well and so graciously and i pray that that will just thrill our hearts today and and launch us into this season with um, an incredible hope god fill this church with just a passion to continue speaking and proclaiming the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel that is still true today and we saw fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And that just lights on fire and we be faithful with continuing to believe that truth and speak that truth. We love you and we pray these things in the amazing, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.